So I'm going to do something a little bit uh, risky today to start. Uh, we're going to draw some attention and maybe give a little bit of uh, praise to a football team and a football player uh, who have nothing to do with the state of Texas. Okay. Um, and we'll work on reconciling after this. And uh, I realize the dangerous road that I'm walking here. Uh, maybe I don't. Maybe my inbox will tell me how dangerous it was uh, tomorrow morning. But the young man that I want to talk about uh, plays for Clemson University named Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> we have two people here who went to Clemson, at least, as you can tell. Uh, as... as um, uh, Nick and Laura will be happy to remind any of you, Clemson uh, won the national championship uh, in football this last year, and Trevor Lawrence was their starting quarterback. Now, interesting thing about Trevor Lawrence, uh, he had kind of an unusual story in that he was the one of the top recruits uh, coming out of high school and could have gone and played football at really uh, any university pretty much in the country, and at most of them would have basically automatically been guaranteed a starting spot. He was that highly thought of coming out of high school. But he went to Clemson, which was one of the only programs where it was known he would probably not start from the beginning. Clemson had made the uh, football playoffs the year before. They were coming back, ranked second in the country in the preseason polls. They were uh, a contender again for the national cha championship this past year. And they also had a starting quarterback who had taken them to the championship, uh, the football playoffs the year before, who was a rising senior. And history tells you that if you want to play for a national championship, one of the most important aspects is to have an experienced starting quarterback. So people were kind of curious when Trevor Lawrence committed to Clemson and said that that's where he was going to go. But he showed up on campus and wowed people. After a few games into the season, he was named the starting quarterback in sort of a somewhat controversial move. People wondered if this was going to backfire on the program. But uh, with all of their national title hopes at stake, uh, Clemson turned to him as the starting quarterback. But he played amazingly well. He led Clemson to an undefeated season. They then went on and won the ACC championship, their conference championship. They were one of four teams around the country to go to the college football playoffs again this year. And he led them to a semifinal win, and then they played in the national championship game against Alabama. They were the underdog in that game with a true freshman quarterback, and yet they handily beat Alabama in the national championship game. Trevor Lawrence became the second freshman in history to quarterback his team to a national title, and he was named the most outstanding player of the game for the championship game. This interview I saw the day after the game, it's an interview that he gave as in the midst of this kind of historic run and this historic season. It's in the midst of a, of, of a, of a long uh, news conference where he's just being bombarded with a lot of questions and he's answering off the cuff. But I want to play uh, a clip now where the, a reporter is asking him a question. And the question they're asking him is, how in the world do you seem so calm in the midst of everything else that is going on around you as a true freshman starting quarterback at Clemson when this history-making run, everything going, how do you keep, stay so calm as you appear to? And this is the response he gives. Um, I just, that's just kind of always been my personality. And then just growing up, my family's always like, I mean, football is, football's important to me, obviously, but it's just, it's not my life. It's not, uh, it's not like the biggest thing in my life, I would say, uh, my, my faith is. So that just comes from kind of knowing, um, knowing who I am outside of that. So I just know, no matter how big the situation is, it's not really going to define me. Just, just 
putting my identity in, you know, what, what Christ says, what, who he thinks I am and who I know that he says I am. So really, like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people think about me or how good they think I play or whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. So that's definitely been a big thing for me, just uh, in my situation, just knowing that and having confidence in that. So here's some of what's interesting to me about this. This 18-year-old in the midst of this historic run is saying a few things. He's talking about where his identity, where his value comes from, and he's also talking about where it doesn't come from. And he's not saying it like in that defensive way that any of us can do, and we've all seen athletes who can sit there and go when they're in a loss, like, well, it doesn't matter what the critics think. I know who I am. He's not saying it in a defensive way. It doesn't feel like it's kind of like an immature way, which I know I can say it, which when you say that, you know it's exhibiting how much you do care what other people say about you, right? He's not saying it in that way, and he's also not doing the athlete speak of going, well, you know, thank God that I made that kick, and thank God we won the game. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not about that. He's also not just doing the, well, we just, you know, we... the. Take it one game at a time, and we'll just kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other. The things coaches tell you to say. This is a wholly different thing for me that I'd like you to keep in mind today. Because when I watched that video from the beginning, I looked at that 18-year-old and going, man, if he means that, and if he can hold on to that, his life is going to have more freedom than most anybody else I know. If he can actually believe that and hold on to that, he is going to have more freedom in his life than most human beings ever conceive of. Because he's really clear about what makes him and what makes life important, and he's really clear about what doesn't. And to actually have that freedom is an amazing perspective on life. And it's that freedom that I think is available to all of us. It's not that Trevor Lawrence was born with this understanding. That we can all be people who have that perspective on what makes life important and worth living and have that freedom in our own existence. And it's that that I'm hoping we're going to get to today as we continue in the six-month journey through the book of Luke. Uh, today we find ourselves in chapter 10, starting in verse 38. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us now. Now as they went on their way, he, Jesus, entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying, but Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we hear the scripture passage again, we pray that your spirit would continue to speak your truth, your gospel in our life. No matter who we are or how we walk in here, what questions, what doubts, what experiences, what hopes, what joys, may we hear your good news, your gospel to us today, and may it change our lives. We are praying for nothing less than that, but we pray it with confidence because we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This is, uh, this is a fascinating passage of scripture, and I think it can help us as we continue in this journey. Uh, the goal of this teaching series of this six-month journey through Luke is to help us dive further and further into our vision statement, that we say that we are encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. And we're hoping that this, this series helps us to get exposure to the fullness of what following Jesus can look like. Uh, and when people ask, is, is, and we've just had a, a new group of, of new members welcomed uh, this morning, 
into life here at Covenant. If someone asks the question, well, how do you do that? How do you actually live out that vision statement? Well, we say, well, what lies beneath it are three behaviors, three different disciplines that we are called to have in our life that we organize our church life around, we hope, and that we organize our individual lives around. And we think that if we have the discipline to organize our lives, to handle our time in, in a certain way, that it opens us up and exposes us more and more to encountering Jesus and to living out this sense of purpose of our life, that our life has purpose and meaning. First behavior, the first discipline that we want to organize ourselves around is the practice of solitude, the ability to be with God, to pay attention to the presence of God, to focus on our intimacy and our relationship with God. We say the second thing after uh, solitude is that we want to be a people who practice community. And community not being that people know the elevator speeches of our life and how great our life was and how great our last vacation was and how great our job is and how great our kids are doing uh, and, and that stuff and how many likes we get when we post something on Facebook, but people that actually know us, people that know how to pray for us, people that know the struggles we're going through, people that know the hopes and the dreams that we have and the excitement we have, and people that walk with us in that. That's what community is. Is biblically. So number one, we want solitude. Secondly, we want community. And third, we want to organize ourselves around serving, acts of service to our, our spouses, to our friends and our families and our city and in our world. And we think that these are the patterns that we see in Jesus' life. This is how Jesus, we see over and over again, organizes his values in his days. He encourages us and his followers to do that. And today, this scripture passage certainly points us to the first practice of solitude. We see a lot in that word solitude in this passage because solitude doesn't just mean that we go off and, and, and have a completely separate time from the world uh, just with Jesus. We see that, that Mary here uh, is able to sit in the midst of a gathering, in the midst of hosting, in the midst of other people being there, but she focuses on the presence of Jesus in that moment. In some ways, that's really what separates Mary and Martha, is that Martha is doing a lot, which is good. There's nothing wrong with doing things, and, and life involves doing lots of things. But Martha does not see the presence of Jesus in any of the things that she's doing. She sees Jesus as somewhere else doing something, and that Mary is able, in the midst of that gathering, to find some way to, in these words, sit at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the better part. Now, why? Why is this important? Because uh, some of you might be drawn to the word solitude. Others of us, and I include myself in this, are more like, you know, I get that and I hear that that's important. The community part really works more naturally for me. Acts of service, I can organize my day around that and I can like check things, go, yeah, I'm definitely doing that. Solitude's a little fuzzier. It's a little more mysterious. I don't really know when I try it, if I've done it right. Uh, I don't really quite know if that, what, what that means. And so I'm just gonna keep gravitating to the other ones that feel more natural. But there is a real importance that we cannot skip over this and this is the better part that Jesus says Mary is choosing. Henry Nouwen writes uh, a, a lot about the, these patterns and these behaviors, these disciplines. And Henry Nouwen writes about why it is so important that no matter who we are, no matter if we're an extrovert or an introvert, no matter how old we are, that it is critical we don't skip this first step of solitude. And he said, because if nothing else, solitude, when we are in the presence of Jesus, it reminds us of something that every single person in this world needs. And that what we need and what solitude exposes us to is the reminder that we are loved and valued in this world. 
that we are the beloved of God. And there is nothing that we have to do to earn that. And there is nothing in faith that we can do that is so shameful that it takes away from that. That we are more loved and more valued than we can possibly imagine. The study of psychology backs this up. If you want to really ruin someone's life, take away that sense of being loved and important and valued. And there is few things you can do to rob a person of their humanity that way. If you want to truly injure a child, have them in a situation where they do not know that they are truly loved, accepted, and valued where they are. And the wounds of that can stay with us for our entire life. There is something that is critical in that place of solitude that we hear and experience at the feet of Jesus the words of God that say to us over and over and over again, you are somebody. You are loved. You are valued. You are important. Now and says that if we don't spend time in solitude with God, letting that wash over us, that we miss the point of grace. God is not saying to any of us today, when you do really great things, I am so proud of you and I want to put a bumper sticker in my car telling everybody what you've done because I just am just head over heels proud of you. But when you do shameful things, then it takes away from that sense of value in my eyes. God is saying, no, this is a gift of grace. You are loved and valued because God declares you to be valuable, not because you earn it and not because you take away from it. Now and says that if we don't get that, then we have to have that in our lives so much that we're going to go searching for it in other places. It's not that we're sitting there going, oh yeah, I don't need to hear that message. We will just go find it and looking for it somewhere else, not even in bad places. He says that, for instance, one of the places we'll go look for it is community. That we're going to need people then to tell us how important we are and how valued we are and how loved we are. And he said, but in the end, no matter how good of friends or family, no matter how happy your marriage is, no matter anything else, that there is no people, there are no people and there is no community that can truly let us know all the time. We are totally loved, accepted, beloved, and nothing will change in that. Relationships have all kinds of different ways that they can change over time. But now and also says to us that if we look to relationships to give us identity, we will actually sabotage them. Because if you need a relationship to make you feel like you are important and valued in somebody, then you subconsciously start protecting that relationship. And it leads to a path of where we become people pleasers and conflict avoiders, where we quit telling the truth and speaking the truth in love, where we lose the ability to hear it because anything that might cause a tremor in that relationship shakes something very deep within us. And the problem with that, friends, is the moment we become people pleasers, conflict avoiders, where we aren't speaking the truth, we rob the relationship of depth and intimacy. And so we just start skimming along the surface, saying everything's fine. And the need to protect the relationship actually strangles the relationship because we place too much importance on only having identity as we're associated with others. So he says, number one, you can look for it in the community, and that's often where people do, but in the end, it will leave us wanting more. He said that what other people do is that then they go and look for it and find a sense of worth and accomplishment through their, their jobs or through their careers or through uh, the ways that they're spending their time, the accomplishments of their children and their grandchildren, and that those things make us feel important. 
So now it says what we do is that we have these moments where it's like, oh, I got into the right college, or look at my grades, or I'm on this list, and, uh, and everyone knows how well I'm doing, or I got this job, or I got into the right grad school, or these things make me feel like somebody. These things make me feel important. Other people respect me because of what I'm doing. That we start placing our identity in those things, and that what that leads to is this roller coaster of life where when things are good, we feel like somebody, but the moment they're not, our worth starts to be robbed from us. This is why retirement can be so difficult for many people in our culture. I've said this before, it's a great quote, but because as someone said in retirement, we're going into retirement is going from who's who to who's he, or who's who to who's she. And when we are lost with that sense of identity, it's just like, I just don't know how to cope in this, so we just hang on and hang on and hang on because we can't imagine our life without it. And ultimately, again, does not get us what we are truly seeking. This is the better path that Mary has chosen because it is the path where we hear the words that we are created to need to hear and know is true, which is that we are the beloved. We have worth and we have meaning. Now, with all that in mind, I want you to listen again to this video. I'm going to play it one more time. It's a video of Trevor Lawrence, and I want you to listen to what he uh, says. Um, I've just, that's just kind of always been my personality. Um, and then just growing up, my family's always like, I mean, football is, football is important to me, obviously, but it's just, it's not my life. It's not, uh, it's not like the biggest thing in my life, I would say, uh, my, my faith is. So that just comes from kind of knowing, um, knowing who I am outside of that. So I just know no matter how big the situation is, it's not really going to define me. Just, just putting my identity and, you know, what, what Christ says, what, who he thinks I am and who I know that he says I am. So really, like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people think about me or how good they think I play or whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. So that's definitely been a big thing for me, just uh, in my situation, just knowing that and having confidence in that. Okay. Now, I have no idea if Trevor Lawrence reads Henry Nowen. I have no idea. But he's speaking exactly into what Nowen talks about. What are the things he says he cares about? What makes me who I am is who Jesus says that I am. What do I not pay as much attention to? I don't pay attention to the community and how valuable people are telling me I am. And again, this isn't someone that's in a defensive posture because he's kind of on the road down and, and things have been really hard. This is someone that everyone's telling him, you are making history and you are amazing. And he's like, it's not really where I find my sense of self-importance. And where else am I not finding it? I'm not finding it in my accomplishments. In setting records as, uh, in the history of college football and doing something no one else has done before, what is his response to that? It's not really the most important thing in my life. It doesn't define me. The moment, no matter how big it is, it doesn't define who I am. <laughs> I don't know if Trevor Lawrence has read Henry Nowen at all, but what I believe is that Trevor Lawrence has chosen the path of Mary. I think he's chosen the better part. I think he's spent a lot of time sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I think he can look at people and says, I actually know the voice that tells me 
what makes me valued and important. And all the other stuff, once you hear that voice, all the other noise starts to fade away a little bit. That kind of freedom is what really living is about, like. It's what it looks like. It's what it feels like. And the good news, guys, is it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what we need to start doing in this. This is not an overly complex lesson. We need to start choosing the better part. We need to start making the decisions in the midst of our days, in the midst of a culture that celebrates being Martha, where we're busy all the time, where the emails keep coming in, where the responsibilities keep coming in, where the to-do lists keep building up, that you and I must choose how we spend our time and what we think is valuable. And do we want to stay crazy busy majoring in the minors, or do we want to live a life where we're keeping the main thing the main thing? And it is about choices we make of what is truly important and what is not. And so I would urge you this week to think about how you spend your time, how you discipline yourself, what disciplines you put into your life. If you are somebody that is sitting there right now going, I feel really close to Jesus. I feel like God is really speaking to my life. I feel like I know what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus right now. Uh, I really am aware of that. I want to encourage you in that and say that that is the way to continue to build and discipline your life to have freedom and joy. But if you are like me and like what I assume is the vast majority of people in here and you tend to be Martha... I know you might sit there and go, no, 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 I'm like Mary, or I feel like I'm like Mary. If we all looked at your calendar last week, would we be like, you're Martha. You're Martha. This is what you're doing. Then we need to start choosing the better part. Then we need to start journeying in this direction. And here's the cool part. There's no legalistic way you have to do that. What it means to sit at the feet of Jesus can look really different for any of us because it's about a relationship with God and all relationships are unique. You're totally unique. Your way of spending time with Jesus may be completely different from someone else to hear that voice that you're the beloved. I've shared with you all before that when I was in seminary, I really thought I couldn't be a pastor because I couldn't pray the right way because my wife could sit in a room and like it felt like other students could sit in a room who were studying for ministry and like have 30 minutes of silence and be like, oh, I really felt like God said stuff to me. And it's like, I really felt boredom when I tried to sit in a room for 30 minutes. I really felt like I thought a lot more about the Atlanta Braves than I did about anything else in that time. And I'm not certain that counted. And finally, I had someone look at me and go, you know, you don't have to just sit in a room quietly. You can actually go for a walk. I don't know if you can tell. I like moving. I like being active uh, and stuff. It's just more natural to me. And so he's like, you can go for a walk and pray. I'm like, no, no, I'm pretty certain it's this in a room quietly with no distractions. Like, no, no, no. you got to find your way of doing this. And I went for the first time on a prayer walk and it like opened this whole world. I was like going around to be like, did you know you can walk and pray? Do you know you don't have to sit in a room in this like legalistic way of this is how I have my quiet time and I've had my quiet time and if you had your quiet time. And it's like, there's a whole world of freedom in this. This is an opportunity to live with people rather than checking this list of how it's supposed to be. And other people are like, yeah, I know that. I'm like, I didn't know that. No one sent me that memo that it was going to be done that way. You got to start experimenting. If you're in a rut with this stuff, you got to start talking to people about how they experience the Lord and, and trying out different things. Recently, I've been, I confess you, in a rut with this stuff. The prayer walks haven't been walking, working for me in the same way. And so I, uh, a, a number of weeks ago, I asked a pastor that I know I, in the midst of a conversation, I just said, hey, are you feeling, uh, where are you feeling connected to Jesus right now? Like, where are you feeling this practice of solitude? And he goes, oh, for me, it's listening to Handel's Messiah. 
He's like, what? And he goes, no, no, no. Like, I'm listening to Handel's Messiah right now. And it's incredible. And I was like, is that like the Hallelujah Chorus thing? He goes, yeah, yeah. But that's like one small part. Handel's Messiah was this whole thing that, that hundreds of years ago, Handel really felt like in this moment he saw the face of God and he wrote this music out in this like short amount of time. And if you listen to the whole thing, it's almost three hours long. And, and, and I listen to Handel's Messiah and I'm like, no, no, I want to feel closer to Jesus. I don't know what that has to do. He's like, no, listen to it. It's the words of scripture and all this other stuff. And so in this feeling of just being dry and like I was in a desert spiritually, I went into our house one day. I have no idea how you find Handel's Messiah, but we have one of these little Google hub things, right? And so I've watched my kids like, okay, Google, tell me this or that. And so I like, I'm there by myself. I'm like, okay, Google, play Handel's Messiah. Guys, I'm being serious with you. It's changing my life right now. I, I, I'm being really serious. Is changing my life right now. Because I feel this whole different experience of God listening to this music and these words of scripture and I'm singing it in my house and I'm praying it and I am this person that when the kids come in from carpool and I'm there, they're like, why are you listening to this again? Because it's just booming all over our house and it's become this whole thing for me. Is it what I'm gonna be doing to feel close from the Lord to the Lord six months from now? I have no idea. But it is this whole new world of feeling the presence of God in my life and feeling those words of truth of who he says I am through the ups and the downs of life washing over me. And right now, I have confidence in who Christ says I am that I didn't have several weeks ago. And that is the invitation to us all today to choose the better part. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask this day that you would lead us and guide us along this path, the path of Mary, the path of in the midst of a world where we feel like we are and need to be Martha all of the time, and there is so much to do, that we would carve out the discipline to sit at your feet and pay attention to your presence. Meet us. Speak to us. Move in our lives. Show us new ways of experiencing your presence and your beauty and your love in our life. And may we have a freedom and a joy that results from knowing your voice that means we've come home again. We lift this prayer and this desire before you and we lift it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.